You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It was just after Hurricane Katrina had destroyed New Orleans that I started to get it. Everyone who was able to turn on a TV knew that the disaster was coming. And yet, of its 6,000 employees, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, had managed only to station a single person in the city before the storm hit. As I read about the 30,000 desperate people in the Superdome, my mind turned to the billions and billions and billions that we had spent on preparedness since 9-11, the great levy of public money that was supposedly necessary to keep us safe, and it slowly dawned on me that it had all been a waste. These inconceivable expenditures, this greatest security effort ever mounted by the mightiest nation in history, and it was all for nothing. We might as well have piled the banknotes up in a pasture somewhere and set them on fire. From first to last, the New Orleans disaster was a test of Bush's market-based government. To start with, we had FEMA as it was back in 2000, a well-run, freestanding federal agency whose employees reported high morale and job satisfaction. Candidate George W. Bush even praised the agency in one of his debates with Al Gore. President George W. Bush then put FEMA under the charge of Joe Albaugh, a Texas winger with no disaster experience but a long history at Bush's side. Albaugh proceeded to fill the place with political appointees and incompetent pals like the soon-to-be-notorious Michael Brown. Two years later, Albaugh left Brownie in charge and opened up a lobby shop representing companies that specialized in disaster relief and big reconstruction projects, much needed in Iraq in those days. Thomas Frank is the author of One Market Under God and What's the Matter with Kansas. He's a founding editor of The Baffler, a contributing editor to Harper's, and a regular columnist for The Wall Street Journal. His new book is The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Rule. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. It's my pleasure. Thomas, your book begins with your thesis, which is that, especially in the excerpt we just heard, mismanagement, it's not a mistake. It's a goal. Well, it's a let me put it this way i wouldn't i wouldn't go that far i would say it's an inevitable consequence of their goals you know they they have a this you know extreme distrust of of competent federal employees which they've stated again and again and again over the years they don't like having good people in government and they do like uh filling the government with uh with hacks and cronies and and friendly uh political types and so uh, and then of course then you have the sort of the other question of the revolving door, you know, which is what conservatism is all about, is you 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 work for the government for a while, then you go out and profit in the in in the private sector, and so between those ideas and that force, this is what's going to happen every time. Your book begins with where you uh, bring back one of the primers of our youth. We are the government. <laughs> Could you tell us about the story of the smiling dime then and now? Yeah, the uh, <laughs> it was a. I just happened across this elementary school uh, civics textbook published in 1945, We Are the Government. And it has this very rosy 
uncynical view of what government is and what government does. And one of the ways, you know, government, uh, you know, it helps us out. It, uh, it Over at the Department of Agriculture, they research, you know, better plowing methods, you know, and stuff like that. And they, they one of the ways that they tell this story is through um, the story of, uh, of uh, this dime with a smiley face drawn on him. And it's called Follow This Dime. And the dime starts out, you know, coming, uh, being mined out of the ground by a miner. The ore is mined, you know, and uh, the miner has his his safety and health looked after by, you know, the Department of Labor, <laughs> Department of Mine Safety or whatever it is. The, you know, and then the uh, the dime is minted at the uh, by the Treasury Department and the dime. Uh, let's see, it's, it, it goes out into the economy and it's paid in some tax on gasoline. It gets picked up or it, gets, it goes to a Coast Guard lieutenant or something like that and he buys a parrot with it. You know, it's this sort of happy story of uh, this blithe story of, of from, from when people thought that it was good to have things like taxes on gasoline. It just made sense. Uh, you know, and uh, and to have uh, government supervising the safety of miners, all of those things just were you know automatic. Uh, you know that was the, they were they were no brainers for that generation in 1945. And so I, I tried to write my own version of the uh, follow this dime story. You know what it would look like today. So the dime starts again with the the, the federal government, and uh, it's it goes out in a massive payment to. Uh, uh, to a federal contractor, to one of these companies that they've outsourced everything to, to do some work that the government used to do itself. But now, of course, you know the government pays, uh, uh, you know, pays private companies to do that work, and the dime goes as part of the payment. The dime gets eventually makes its way into the pocket of a, one of the workers there, and uh, he incorporates it into his monthly car payment. Uh, it, it, from there, it manages to wind up in the coffers of a automobile trade association, and they happen to be fighting uh, this new rule proposed by the Department of Transportation where, uh, you know, your car would have to alert you if, uh, if, if your tires are low, if, you know, if, if your tires aren't inflated properly, which is actually, this is, this is something that actually happened a few years ago. And there's a big fight between the Automobile Trade Association uh, against this regulation. And the Trade Association, in my f- fictionalized version of the story, gives the dime to uh, one of these consultants that you have in Washington who launches challenge after challenge after challenge to the regulation and manages to slow it down for many years, saving the automobile companies untold billions of dollars because then they don't have to put the uh, you know the new equipment into their cars and meanwhile the consultant buys himself one of these fantastic mansions out in the the suburbs with nice white columns in front you talk about this the suburbs and that comes early in, in the book what you mentioned is kind of shocking in that Washington DC used to be more of a, a an everyman's town than it, it is now it was a middle-class city. Now, it's always been uh, demographically peculiar, something of an outlier, and that's because it doesn't have manufacturing. And so it doesn't have, um, like, I moved there from Chicago. Chicago has a lot of manufacturing. Chicago has a big blue-collar class. And I always assume that's the way every city in America looked. You had a lot of working-class people. Washington doesn't have that. It has... Um, a lot of very poor people, but it doesn't have a sort of blue-collar class. And so it's always been uh, demographically peculiar. Okay, but that said, the sort of model that Washington proposed for the people that worked for the government, the ideal system that it set up, was these sort of brick colonial homes that you find all over the city. They're like these perfect cubes, and they stretch all the way around the city in this huge suburban arc. And they were built... uh, 
using FHA uh, loans and guidelines back in the 30s, uh, from the 30s up until uh, you know about the 1950s. In fact, they were sort of similar kind of. Uh, they go in for brick there in a big way, brick Cape Cods and brick uh, ranch houses and this sort of thing, right up into the 1970s. But all along the line, these are you know all through this period that I'm describing, these are very middle class houses. They're not houses for millionaires. They're houses for you know. Uh, for white-collar workers who aren't making a lot of money, who are middle class. Well, along comes the 80s and the 90s and then the current decade, and Washington just exploded. It became very wealthy to the point where today it's, it is the richest city in America or maybe tied for richest with a couple of other places. But it's, it's extraordinarily wealthy. Wow. Yeah, and uh, what you find now... And by the way, I did all I ran all the numbers on this, and it's very interesting, and we can talk about that in a minute. But what you find there now is, uh, you know, these. Uh, I mean, you have McMansions everywhere in America. These, you know, gigantic houses that have been going up all over the place in the last few years. But in Washington, it's come to a kind of crazy consummation with these enormous uh, turreted kind of, you know, Versailles-like. Uh, Homes, you know, these stately homes with the beautiful fountains out in front, and it's it's fashionable to have them on a golf course so you can, you know, wake up in the morning and walk outside and tee off from your patio, you know, and that, and that sort of thing. And they're all over the place in Washington. And I um, used to go up and visit Washington back in the 1980s, and um, when I was in college. <clears throat> And that stuff wasn't there then. And so when I moved there now, you know, and, and started taking note of this stuff, you know, this, this is ex- all this money that's in Washington, D.C., that's the, the question I, was, I, I kept asking. It's like, who are these people? How did Washington get to be such a wealthy town? And that's what I try to answer in the book. How did it get to be so damn rich? Uh, and uh, do you want the answer, or shall we just work on that as we go through? <laughs> well, tell me, what is the answer? Well, uh, the answer is uh, it's it's uh, contractors, government contractors uh, that I referred to earlier. I mean, in the if you if you chart Washington's rise to being the richest city in America, or you know, tied like I said with New York and uh, Silicon Valley area. But uh, the Washington Post, by the way, every now and then says the richest city in America. But if you chart this, when did it happen? I went back to 1969, and at the time, Washington was the ninth richest city in America. It's behind Chicago, behind Detroit, which is hard to believe, behind L.A., behind a lot of cities. Um, and it started zooming up in the 1980s, sort of leveled off a little bit in the, in the 90s, and then started zooming up again in the under the, the Bush administration. And so its rise, it's, you know, it's becoming wealthy coincided really dramatically with these conservative administrations. Ironically, administrations run by people who profess to hate Washington and hate all its works. It's very ironic. And, I, you know, what what is going on here? It turns out it's the, uh, the, the system of contracting out, outsourcing government operations to the private sector and to these businesses that are all headquartered in Washington, you know, and that's where all the, that's where they, they, they work. And, you know, we've sent... Uh, by the way, example that the Iraq Reconstruction Project has largely been entrusted to private companies rather than to the U.S. Army or the Corps of Engineers or something like that, as it would have been done, you know, in a different period. And um, they've now given them a hundred billion dollars, and a lot of that is what's building those mansions, and a lot of lobbying money too. Lobbying is a huge industry in Washington. You talk about uh, the um, Virginia suburb. The, the Loudon, Virginia. Tell us about that and, and lead us to Eugene Delgadio. <laughs> 
All right. This is a okay. Loudoun County is the richest county in America, um, or the richest, you know, heavily populated county in America. And for a while, it was also the fastest growing county in America. It's the site of this sort of intense suburban development. And what happened was, a, a, a while back, the county government got taken over by what what you would call a smart growth faction. You see this all over the America. These suburban battles back and forth. Uh, between smart growth people and basically uh, suburban developers. A smart growth faction got in charge and did what they could to slow down the development of Loudoun County. And the developer faction sunk all sorts of money into making sure that these people got thrown out at the next, the next go-round. And uh, they did it. Uh, and they called them all sorts of, of course, all sorts of, of outrageous names. Terrorists. And, yeah, they called them Zoning terrorists. terrorists. Yeah, yeah. Zoning terrorists. Well, you know, there's a, there's a, a long, you know, history in the American in American conservatism of mistrusting zoning. Now, where I come from in Kansas City, zoning just seems uh, so natural and so normal. I mean, that's how you have a uh, that's how you have a proper city is with zoning. But but a lot of people on the right have always regarded zoning as an intolerable affront to the rights of property owners. You know, how can you? How dare you tell me what to do with my land? If I want to put you know twenty houses on this pasture, then by God, I should be allowed to do it. And um, those people won. And sure enough, they started, you know, just developing the hell out of uh, Loudoun County and, you know, giving the developers everything they wanted. And it was as close a case as, as you can find to this kind of, uh, you know, they bankroll, you know, they bankroll these people to get into office. These people get into office and they give their uh, campaign supporters what the campaign supporters want. It's It was very uh, – it was shockingly straightforward. By the way, those people are out again now. I mean, the people in the, in the county got really sick of this really fast and tossed them all out. But uh, one of the more interesting characters on the Loudoun County board was this guy called Eugene Delgadio. Uh, he's, he may still be there. Uh, I would be surprised if he got defeated. Uh, but he's a very he's quite a personality. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of his organization, but he likes to do – he was in Young Americans for Freedom back in the 60s, this, this sort of very right-wing uh, student group. And uh, he goes in for this kind of uh, conservative street theater. And I, I, he has a website where you can see pictures of him and his uh, and his followers you know, doing things like they would go into the city, into Washington and set up a you – know, uh, Kennedy sobriety checkpoint, you know, and they think this is very funny, right? And uh, you know, stuff like that. He's he's uh, he he goes in. This, there's this long tradition of right wing street theater, and he he does this. I'm speaking with Thomas Frank about his new book, The Wrecking Crew: How Conservatives Rule. This idea that the state is our enemy, it, it it's old, and you trace it back to. Uh, one of the earliest forms of of this expressions of this is uh, from 1935. Albert J. Nock, our enemy, the state. Yeah, Nock is a uh, <clears throat> interesting guy. Another great writer, friend of H. L. Mencken's. Um, I'm, you know, Mencken is my is my hero. Um, not politically, but Mencken is the greatest master of uh, you know American uh, American prose that there ever was. The but polemic. Nock, yeah, of polemic. Yeah. Oh, he was. Oh, he was. He was the best. Uh, and I study Mencken, you know. And Nock is up there with him. Nock is very good. Um, Nock was kind of a cranky fellow. <laughs> In the middle of the Depression, he came up with this theory. I mean, and we're talking about this is the decade of you know proletarian literature and everything. And he came up with this theory that he uh, about what he called the 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 the, the remnant 
okay, that, uh, that there was this remnant of, of higher beings who lived among uh, ordinary people, but they were sort of exalted people. They were people who were better than other people, right? And they were, they were ultra-civilized, and they had to pass civilization down from one to the other. And, of course, he thought of himself as being one of these people. But it was, you know, he was profoundly out of step with the times that, that he lived in. But he was a, he was a um, sort of extreme libertarian, and he thought that the state was this, uh, this, just this, this, this historical force of evil that uh, grew and grew and grew, did everything wrong, and could not be stopped. That grew by this kind of logic of its own. And his book, *Our Enemy, the State*, is it's one of the most uh, depressing and pessimistic books you will ever read. I mean, should you should you sit down and try to read it? Uh, but it's uh, you know, if if you want to understand the conservative mindset, it's it's an important, it's a classic. What you talk about is this idea that the object isn't to shrink the government, but to capture it. Yeah. Now, Nock himself doesn't say that, but he gives many, many examples of it. He says that's what government is. That's what the state is in his mind. It's something that you capture. It's never going to go away, he says. It's just going to continue to grow and to tyrannize us for the, for the rest of our lives. But what the state what happens is one group in society will capture the state. And by the way, he's amazingly uh, uh, frank about all this stuff. He uh, apparently was reading a lot of the sort of radical historians of that period of the 1930s. And so he said, like, the American Revolution was just a group of wealthy plantation owners, you know, capturing the state and then using it to beat up on whoever their enemy was at the time. You know, I don't I don't remember all the precise historical arguments, but that the Constitution was a was a document that, you know, where this class... Uh, inscribed its power and, you know, wrote it over the rest of us. He's very cynical, even about the Constitution. He's cynical about Abraham Lincoln. He's cynical about the Civil War. And he hated, most of all, Franklin Roosevelt. You know, all these previous examples of of groups capturing the state were business groups. You know, you had uh, the... the uh, you know the uh, uh, <clears throat> the planter class of the South captured the state. The industrialists of the North captured the state. But what was really awful was that now in the 1930s, when he was writing this, work the working class had captured the state in the in the person of Franklin D. Roosevelt. And this was you know this was just unthinkably worse than the others. Now the interesting thing about Nock is that he didn't think there was anything you could do about this. He thought that the state would just that it would go on forever, being captured by one side, then captured by the other. And this is remember what I'm saying. This is this is a foundational document of conservative thinking. Any conservative who's you know who's 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 read you know the literature of his own tradition is very familiar with this book. And and ultimately, I think that if you just, you know, that knocks incredible cynicism. I mean, like I say, this guy hated all forms of government, thought it was all just, you know, one group capturing it and then using it to beat up on another group, one after another after another. If you, if you, if you, you know, tone down some of, some of his cynicism, you can understand that what, you know, that there is a solution to the problem of the state. Capture it again. Capture it again. Business groups get together and capture the state. And by God, that's what they've done. That's what's happened in the last 20 years. You, you taught one of the prime points of this was the creation of something, and I remember this, and, and, but I didn't, never, I, I didn't at the time understand the full implications of the Grace Commission. Yeah, the Grace Commission. It's um, not well remembered today, but it, it, plays, it played kind of an important role in my research. I don't, 
it, it didn't get as much play in the text as as uh, as it probably deserved. <clears throat> the Grace Commission was appointed by Ronald Reagan uh, fairly early on in his uh, in his some at some point in his first administration. I don't remember exactly when, but the idea was. Reagan had pretty much uh, forced the government into crisis with the massive deficits that were brought on by the tax cuts and the military spending. And so you had these massive deficits. Everybody was worried about the deficits. What are we going to do? So Reagan appointed a a blue ribbon commission that would investigate government altogether and find out how we could save money and cut down on waste, fraud, and abuse. You know, the famous things that you always want to cut down on, waste, fraud, and abuse. And he appointed um, this industrialist, J. Peter Grace, to head the commission. And uh, Grace has actually been back. He's dead now, but he's actually been back in the news because his company was the one in uh, Libby, Montana. You know about that story, the asbestos in that town. And well, it doesn't matter. No. (laughs) Okay. Well, (laughs) that was his company. Anyhow, uh, the Grace Commission was interesting historically in a number of respects. One is that all previous blue ribbon commissions had involved, you know, appointing government officials, business uh, people from the business uh, world, and also people from the labor movement to investigate some subject or other. Almost always something in the private sector, you know, something that was going wrong out in American society. In this case, basically, Reagan appointed uh, people from leading, you know, leading businessmen to investigate government. Totally turned the idea of the Blue Ribbon Commission on its head, and uh, I think there were four hundred or you know four hundred and change uh, people on the Grace Commission, and of them, one was a representative of organized labor. So it was also the first time that you had that. When you know before that, commissions used to always be government, labor, and business. This time it was just business. Labor was completely left out, and government was the object of inquiry. And uh, the Grace Commission is important because this is the first time that this was the first time that somebody sat down and said, the way we solve our problems is to privatize and outsource uh, basically anything that we can, because the uh, uh, the private sector will always and in every circumstance do it better, more efficiently, and more cheaply than the government, and that's how we're going to save money by privatizing and outsourcing. Yet when that doesn't work out, and it it hasn't worked, it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> uh, what happens is, and this is an interesting uh, perspective, the conservatives are always the victim. They're always the outsider. They're never quite responsible, They're never responsible. For, for what's no. happened. In, in, their own, in their own mind, yeah. They're never responsible for what's happened. In fact, I was on a different radio show just this morning, Rick, when a caller – you know, I was berating the Bush administration as as, as I you know as I as I like to do these days, and talking about the things that's gotten wrong. And he said, "This caller was like, you know, what are you talking about, conservatives? Bush isn't a conservative." And you know, it's just like five years ago, they he was the greatest conservative of them all, and they they worshipped him. You know, not worship, but you know, they uh, they 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 regarded him very very highly. And what you find in the conservative movement is that this is a movement that continually uh, excommunicates. Its leaders and its uh, its important you know figures when they get into trouble, it just cuts them loose and it says, uh, you know the they weren't really conservative. They say this about uh, Jack Abramoff now. Uh, they say it about all kinds of people. They say it about uh, back in the eighties. They said it about Ronald Reagan when his poll numbers were down in the in the eighty two recession. Um, Richard Vigory's magazine, Conservative Digest, turned on Reagan, and this is after I mean they thought he was the greatest man in history. You know, he he was the ultimate. There was no greater conservative than Ronald Reagan. And yet his numbers drop and they're like, oh, he's become, you know, a pawn of the moderates within his administration. And this was conservatives all across the uh, 
the uh, D.C., you know, conservative movement industry were, were saying this. And um, they're saying that now about Bush. And they can always, uh, by using this sort of ploy, they can always... Uh, you know, get themselves out of get themselves out of blame. They're fantastic blame evaders. And I'll tell you the funniest example of it I have seen lately was uh, an uh, an editorial by Tom Delay, who's no longer in Congress. <laughs> and uh, in it, Tom Delay said, <clears throat> "Now this is this will amuse you, I assume, uh, if you know anything about Tom Delay." He said, uh, "You know, we're he was talking about all the all these the, the failures of the administration, and, and and look, the failures of the Bush administration are manifest and undeniable to you know to anyone, even to uh, people in the conservative movement." And so Delay said, "Look, the problem with conservatism isn't that it's failed; it's that it was never tried." <laughs> this is the you know the former you know boss of the machine is like I never got you know you never really let me have a go at it you know we need to start over again and get some people even more to the right and then then we can have a proper experiment. It's like it's it's interesting because this is this goes with the the terrain you know because it's it's a it's a natural fit for them because their ideology you know there is this kind of utopian thing where. Uh, laissez-faire, where if you just get government out of the private sector altogether, if you completely do away with government, then you'll have utopia. But unless you go all the way there, you know, then you weren't a real conservative. You know, you got to go much further. You got to get government completely out of it. And all these disasters that keep happening, it's because you've let you've left some remnant of government around to screw things up. It's the remnants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm speaking with Thomas Frank about his new book, the Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Rule. One thing that, that I found really interesting was this idea of conservatism isn't just an ideology. Uh, Jack Abramoff, he turned it into a business. Yeah. I, it wasn't just him. This was something they, they, seemed to have, they seemed to have discovered in the 70s. There's this movement called the New Right, a uh, very interesting bunch of guys that figured out that conservatism was not just, you know, a shared ideology, a bunch of guys that agree with each other and have candidates. It was a way you could make money, too. And the, the first way they did this was with direct mail, you know, these sort of po- this political junk mail that comes in your mailbox. And uh, listeners will probably remember things like, you know, the Panama Canal giveaway, which was supposed to be so awful. And you were supposed to give money to whatever cause it was to keep this from happening. Or you were supposed to give money to the Oliver North Defense Fund or something like this. And they raised tons of money this way with these sort of uh, causes. And the causes were always really outrageous. You know, it's like, you know, they're giving away pieces of America. They're betraying our country. You know, these terrible things are killing babies, terrible Awful things are going on, and only you can save us with you know a check written to the right organization. But what would happen is the uh, fundraiser, the guy who sends out the direct mail letters, would do very well from this. Would would take, make a huge profit, you know. Uh, <laughs> but the cause itself, uh, you know, only sometimes would it would it would it do all right. Usually, you know, it might break even. Uh, you know, it might not break even. They might get nothing at all. But the fundraiser would always do well. And so this was a really good business to be in. And by the way, there was no comparable uh, industry on the left. There is now, but there wasn't back then. It took a long time for liberals to catch up with that. And um, then there were other strategies that you see these people starting to develop. And Jack Abramoff, by the way, is uh, he became the head of the College Republicans in 1981 and uh, very quickly started doing direct mail appeals of his own. They had never done that before. The College Republicans had always been 
funded by the Republican National Committee. And uh, he said no. This is, you know, according to interviews I did. He wanted to be, you know, have his own, raise money his, uh, on his own, you know, so they, they would become a much bigger organization. And he did. He was very successful at this. Uh, you know, they raised tons of money. Their membership grew by leaps and bounds. He was also very charismatic uh, and very right wing, moved the college Republicans way to the right. But one of the things that they figured out to do, another way to raise money, and this is very interesting, was to market their battle on campus to uh, uh, corporations that might be interested in it. So, you know, they're, they were fighting at the time these outfits called uh, PERG, Public uh, Interest Resource Research Research Groups. It was set up by Ralph Nader, um, the or it was the it was a you know a, a, an idea founded by Ralph Nader, and you had them on college campuses all around the country, and they would say agitate for things like um, uh, bottle you know bottle laws, where you get a refund on a bottle. You know what that is? Sure, yeah, the yeah. bottle laws and keep yeah. America beautiful. Well, we don't have them in Kansas, so but maybe we do. I don't know. <laughs> I, anyhow. <laughs> uh, uh, anyhow, so they were fighting Perg on campus, and uh, according to this report on them that I found from the mid-1980s, written by Alan Nairn, who's a fairly well-known journalist nowadays, um, they approached—he uh, did interviews with a bunch of members of these groups. Abramoff was not only the head of college Republicans, but of uh, another group as well that was doing exactly the same things as the college Republicans. But they would approach— corporations and say, you know, the pergs are doing these uh, these things that are going to cost you money, the bottle bill or whatever it is, setting up uh, citizens' utility boards in various cities, things that are going to cost business money. Give us money to help us fight the war against the left on campus. And that's how they, they raised money to fight the left. And there's, by the way, this is a, you know, that's the first time I'd ever heard of, of that model. You know, that business model is very interesting, very innovative, very entrepreneurial. And I started looking around in Washington and there's all sorts of people still doing this, uh, essentially selling themselves or getting, I don't know if they, how, what kind of sales pitch they do, but getting donations from corporations and from right wing foundations to fight the left, especially on environmental issues. You, you talk. In about... fact, I'm thinking about doing it myself when this book tour is done. I mean, it seems like an easier way to make a living. You, you talk uh, about uh, kind of the godfather uh, of this idea of defund the left, Howard Phillips. Yeah. Now, Howard Phillips is a fascinating man. Um, he was one of the the new right. He was one of the sort of uh, leading lights of the new right. Um, and uh, his group was called the Conservative Caucus, but he also helped found the Moral Majority. And um, his, that was his signature idea, defund the left. And uh, it's an ingenious idea uh, when you think about it. What, what he proposed, and it, when he started the idea, you know, it, it gets bigger and better as it goes along. But the, the way he originally proposed it was, look at the way um, these leftist groups are funded, like, like the AFL-CIO. They have all these uh, activities that are funded by the Labor Department. Now, the Labor Department isn't funding their political activity, and it's not funding their organizing activity, but it's funding this other thing that they do. And that frees up money for them to do these other things that we don't like. Or, uh, you know, look at the National Endowment for the Arts. They're giving money to artists who are liberals. Or look at, you know, the Energy Department. You know, all these federal uh, uh, agencies were giving money to groups that he considered leftist. And uh, the idea was to 
Stop doing that. Once you get control of the state, you cut these groups off. You stop funding the left. You defund the left. And then the left will, will stop opposing you or it'll wither and die. It's, it, it was a, you know, an amazing um, – it's, it's political hardball of a kind that the left has never – I'm sorry, the liberals in this country have never been able to play. Again, there is no uh, left-wing equivalent to that. There is no – I mean, how are you going to defund the right what, you know – do away with the Fortune 500. I mean, what are you going to do? It's you know, it's impossible. Uh, there is no comparable thing. And what you find uh, through the course of the book that this went from being this. By the way, and he he used to sell defund the left paraphernalia. I have a uh, lapel button that says defund the left on it. It's this, in the shape of a big zero. You know, defund the left. And um, this idea uh, sort of becomes the uh, the chant of the far right. And uh, nowadays, I mean, and th- this is really what some of the more you know well-known things uh, that you see in conservative Washington are. For example, the K Street Project. Well, you know, this is Grover Norquist's very famous effort to uh, force lobbyists and trade associations to give exclusively to the Republican Party and, and to only hire Republicans and to you know stop hiring Democrats, stop giving money to Democrats. And it's ingenious. It's defund the left just by a much more uh, ingenious mechanism. But again, using the power of the state, in this case, Congress, that's who they usually lobby, you know, a guy like Tom DeLay, uh, you know, they, they would come in to, to see Tom DeLay and he would look, you know, the lobbyist or the trade association, and he'd look them up in his b- big book. He famously had this book with everyone's campaign contributions written in it. I mean, now you can look it up online. And he'd say, well, you guys have been giving to the Democrats. You know, you've been giving too much to Democrats. You've been giving 50-50 to both parties. And we don't want that. You've got to, you know, that's got to get, you've got to improve before you're going to have any, any, you know, before I'm even going to listen to you. And, uh, you know, more or less, he would say this. this is a very famous story from the early days of the Gingrich Revolution. And what's really creepy is it worked. Uh, the lobbying groups started hiring mainly Republicans. They started tilting way to the right in their donations, started to, uh, giving to the Republican Party. It was defund the left, and it worked. Now, you just mentioned a name. I wanted to ask you about this guy, Grover Nyquist. Norquist. Norquist, I'm sorry. He is a, he is a constant theme through this book, and he's a guy that I would think that if I were to put you and Grover in the same room, I think there might be like putting matter and antimatter oh, no, together. No, no. He's, a, he's a nice man. He really is. I, I liked him. I mean, as a, as a person, and he's a, the Grover is a, in my opinion, Grover is a, is a great genius. I mean, there is nobody on the left, on the left side of the spectrum that has figured out things the way that guy has, uh, you know, that has developed the kind of strategies that he has. Uh, and, you know, he comes up throughout the book just because in any study of Washington, you know, of conservative Washington, he really is one of the he's one of the smartest guys. You know, he's one of the ones with the best ideas. He and Karl Rove. So, you know, uh, yeah, he comes up a lot. Now, one of the organizations you mentioned, and this sounds really interesting, the International Foundation for Freedom. Yeah. International Freedom Foundation. Yeah. Yes. Tell, tell us about that. Well, Rick, it was all about freedom. They were in favor of it. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> Internationally, of yeah, course. Yeah. No, it was a think tank um, founded by uh, Jack Abramoff, who's uh, one of the characters that co- runs throughout the book. I, was, I became fascinated by Abramoff's career before he became this notorious figure because of you know, his dealings with the uh, Indian casinos. So I looked into his uh, prehistory or his earlier history and um, – 
he was a lot. He, he used to go to South Africa a lot back in the apartheid days. Um, <laughs> or he used to have friends in South Africa. Anyhow, he eventually uh, set up this group in 19. This is after his college Republican days were over. He set up a think tank in D.C. called the International Freedom Foundation. And it had offices in D.C. and in South Africa and in uh, London, England. And it, um, it on the surface looked like an ordinary think tank. It published uh, a magazine. He was Abramoff was listed as the publisher. Uh, it had newsletters. Uh, it would have uh, you know uh, panel discussions. Uh, they would hold. They would give out prizes. They would do all the sort of things that think tanks do. Um, at, only it was later revealed that the think tank was a project of South African military intelligence, and that it was set up in order to sort of go after. Um, the people in America who were making life so difficult for the apartheid regime back in the 1980s, you know, so to to fight the people who were in favor of sanctions, to fight the African National Congress, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, this wasn't known until the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in the 1990s. But so I I was very intrigued by this. Um, do you want me to tell this whole story or should I just stop? <laughs> well, yeah, they were heavily connected by spooks and you had a hard time to, to getting anybody to even talk about them. Oh, yeah. They did. It's just, this is the story in the – this is the, 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 the square in the Abramoff story where everything goes dead. Nobody will talk anymore. I talked to a lot of college Republicans for this book. Uh, they were a lot of them very nice people, very happy to talk to me and tell me about their adventures. You know, when they were young, um, I talked to a lot of people. When I, you come to the International Freedom Foundation, when you're doing the Abramoff story, people don't want to talk about it. Uh, they, you know, they they hang up the phone. You know, they uh, don't return your emails, or they do return your emails and say they don't want to talk to you. Uh, you know, and I and this is including the guys in South Africa. You know, who were who were running it down there. Um, I contacted people all over the world to, to ask about this thing, and um, I got nowhere. Uh, no one will talk about it. Uh, very interesting organization, and uh, I mean. Look, I'm not. Uh, I'm never going to be able to get to the bottom of it because we don't have their archives. Uh, you know, I, I did my best trying to figure out what was up with them. I read their magazines and their newsletters, and the one thing about them that fascinates me is that uh, I mean, it was a propaganda organization. We know that now, but somewhere in the course of its life, and Abramoff, by the way, was only there for I think two years, and then he went off to make movies, but. And it lasted for longer than that. It lasted about three or four years after he departed. But um, somewhere in the course of its life, it started out as this very uh, 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 right-wing organization in this sort of typical uh, red-baiting mode. This is what the the far right used to do back in the in the Reagan era was call everyone a commie, and um, they were very um, you know they did a lot of this. Every there was you know Soviet influence everywhere, Soviet propaganda everywhere. Um, the the right wing in those days really believed that the Soviets were somehow pulling the strings behind Western media and stuff like that. And this is the reason I say it's ironic is because, of course, this group was in the control of, of South African <laughs> military intelligence. It really was a propaganda group controlled by an, an, an espionage agency. It's the most amazing. And here they were accusing everyone else of being just this <laughs> strangest thing in the world. But after a few years, they gave up on that. Uh, because the Soviet Union had fallen, right? And so it didn't do any—I mean, the, remember the, the, the rationale for this project, as we now know, was to somehow rescue the apartheid regime in South Africa, to somehow defend the apartheid regime. And the way you did that was by calling all of its enemies communists. Um, the apartheid regime itself did this all the time. 
I did a lot of research on South Africa for this book. Way, way, way too much. <laughs> it's the most depressing subject you will ever research. Believe me, it's it is it is so disheartening to read about that. But anyhow, the Soviet Union fell at some point, and uh, communism collapsed. So how are they going to? What are they going to do now? What's the International Freedom Foundation going to do now? How are they going to you know protect the Pretoria regime now? And this is the funny thing. You know what they did? They became they became libertarians. <laughs> they 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 like started giving out these you know everything had to come back to Hayek. They're always talking you know Friedrich Hayek, the uh, libertarian economist. You know they would give out these prizes uh, all about you know free markets, free this everything everything had to be about free markets. And you're you're looking at me like why the hell would they be so into that? I mean South Africa was a, like a very unfree sort of place. True. The reason was there's two reasons. First of all, sanctions. They're in favor of free trade. They even ran articles denouncing NAFTA in their magazine as part of their war on free trade. You know, or war on, I'm sorry, war on um, on behalf of free trade. Their war against protectionism and against sanctions. You know that you, you had to have free trade and you had no right to impose sanctions on any country anywhere in the world. Meaning, of course, South, South Africa. Africa. Right, right. But the the other very interesting thing is that at the time in South Africa, the business elites of that country, and to some extent the the white government, they knew that the that the you know that the that, the, that their time was up, that the apartheid regime could not hang on any longer. We're talking about the early 1990s here, and that you know the time was running out for them. And so what they were desperately trying to do was um, was manage the situation. Uh, what what is the term that they would always use for it? Um, scenario planning to try to set the stage for a favorable outcome after the apartheid government falls. And so what they wanted to do was somehow get the uh, free enterprise system or the capitalist system you know, written into permanent law somehow in South Africa, made permanent in a way that whatever government comes after apartheid could not change it. You know, could not uh, 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 you know have uh, you know confiscatory taxes. Could not nationalize private industry. All this sort of thing, and uh, so that's and the, it's a very libertarian project to try to force this libertarian idea of the state down on this you know movement, the, the African National Congress that was anything but that, and uh, uh, and that's what that's what they were they were providing covering fire for this idea in South Africa. The really uh, creepy thing, just to wind this story up. It worked. <laughs> That's, it worked. Yes. Yeah, the the ANC did apartheid fell. African National Congress got in, and uh, they agreed to a constitution in which they're not able to nationalize things, and they're not able to uh, tax, you know, to to have a social welfare state like they had promised. I mean, all those years that they had been in opposition, they, this is what they were offering uh, black South Africans: you're going to get, you know, your share of the of the uh, of the pie, and uh, uh, they never got it. I'm speaking with Thomas Frank about his new book, The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Rule. Now, one of your chapters is titled, takes its quote from, from uh, an, I think it's, is it, this is Homer Ferguson in 1928, the best public servant is the worst one? Yes. Yeah. The best public servant is the worst one. Homer Ferguson was a, uh, had been a president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is a big player in, you know, conservative and the conservative movement in Washington was then, still is today. And he gave an interview. It's, you know, um, I forget what it was in. Oh, it was in the Chamber of Commerce's magazine, uh, Nation's Business. And in it, he was, this was, this was the theme of the article, was that the best public servant is the worst one, meaning you don't want quality people 
in government. You know, you don't want to have people who are really talented running things in Washington. Well, why not? Because then government would work. And if government works, then people will start to trust it. And if people start to trust government to get things done, the next thing you know, it's you know a slippery slope to communism, right? And this was the argument, anyways. And uh, you know, and there's also a million stages in between. It'll they'll make it hard on business. They'll raise taxes. They'll regulate us. All this sort of thing. So you can't have government that works. You don't want talented people in government. And um, this was kind of a shocking find. When I came across this, you know, it was to, that someone would be so blunt uh, in saying this. And what I later found as I sort of read conservative literature from the 1920s up to the present was that this was not an unusual idea at all. This is a very common idea on the right, that you don't want the best and the brightest in government. In fact, you want to make it difficult for them to stay in government. You want to make it, you know, you want to make give them disincentives for being in government. You want to make it make the, the private sector more attractive for them. Uh, and uh, they have accomplished this. Again, mission accomplished here. I mean, the, to, they have, you know, if you, uh, this is an anecdote that's, that's, that's related only slightly. But uh, if you were, they have something in Washington called the pay gap, which is uh, back in the 1950s and the 1960s and up into the 1970s, federal workers, you know, the civil service was supposed to be paid roughly comparably what people doing the same work got in the private sector. And they always got a little bit less because they had better benefits. So that was the reasoning. And up until and then, you know, this this stayed pretty much the same up into the 1970s when uh, President Reagan got in, you know, right away, fired the air traffic controllers, basically declared war on the federal workforce, you know, called them all sorts of names, um, you know, and talked about how evil bureaucrats were. And this is their boss, by the way, telling them, you know, how <laughs> what awful people they were. And uh, that's pretty bad. But the pay gap also started to go up and up and up. And so by 1989, I think, the pay gap was about 40% at the highest levels of government. So you were to take a government job, you were, you were earning 40% less than what someone in the private sector would be getting, doing exactly the same work. Um, and then they uh, stopped measuring it. Problem solved, Rick. They stopped measuring it, you know. And I, I wondered, you know, what happened with that because this is this is all part of the the hollowing out of the civil service. You know, you mm -hmm. make it an undesirable career choice. You know, you can make much more money in the private sector doing the same sort of work. And um, well, you also bring down the wages in the private sector, which also benefits a business as well. Well, you're talking about labor there, yeah. blue collar work. Yeah, blue, yeah. The, but we're, yeah, we're the, yes, but uh, management, white collar work, you know, those guys, hey, you know, nothing's too good for them. No. They no. Got, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, one of the, the you know, I, I, you can't really measure the pay gap now because the statistics are all completely different and they, they collect the, the numbers in a different way. And so there's no real w way to compare what the pay gap is now to what it was back then. But anecdotally, it's much, much worse. Uh, a the most senior grade of public servant GS15. Now I might be getting this wrong. I don't remember the numbers from the book, but I believe what a GS15 earns right now at the highest seniority is is $115,000 a year. I'm not positive, but I think that's what it is. The starting pay at one of the big DC law firms uh you know, if you you're fresh out of law school, you go to D.C. and take a job with one of the big firms is much much more than that. I think it's about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars, and that's we're talking about someone's beginning their career at the at the law firm versus someone at the end of their career working for government all their life, and they aren't making as much. 
one of the things that has just recently come up again um, in regards to this, you talk about uh, Monica Goodling with the Justice Department hiring by uh, by ideology. And now oh, we're... that's not me talking. That's the New York Times talking about that. <laughs> you know, that's just uh, that's just my story coming true, Rick. <laughs> well, now we're living with with the the outflow of that, where we find that the Justice Department is now staffed with people who are perfectly qualified, as far as the conservative philosophy is concerned. They're completely incompetent. Yeah, well, that's the way it goes. I mean, that, that, this is one of the one of the, 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 the uh, one of the things that I discovered while I was researching the Wrecking Crew is that they, you know there's a there's a big conflict in the conservative movement. You you know they decided pretty early on you can have people who are part of our movement in government, or you can have people who are competent, but it's very hard to find both. I mean, there are many. You know, as I said, many, many intelligent conservatives out there, lots and lots and lots of them. But it's hard to find people who are acceptable both to the movement and who can do the work at the highest, you know, in in the best way. And so they always choose. Well, you 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 get the drift here. I mean, Monica, Monica Goodling has made my case for me. I don't really have to say anymore. I I, I want to wind this up with and have you talk a little bit about Saipan. Saipan is part of the United States. It's it's actually not a separate country. <laughs> Sometimes we might wish it was, but it uh, seems like it. <laughs> <laughs> it. It seems very foreign, doesn't it, from the description? Saipan came to my attention. It's an island out in the Western Pacific. It's close. It's uh, close to the Philippines, I guess. I mean, thousand miles or so, and um, uh, it's part of the United States. And uh, when it joined up with the United States, they got special uh, rights. Uh, you know, by the treaty that they signed with the U.S. to become part of the U.S., they got to control their own immigration. They got to control their own minimum wage. Uh, they got to control their own tax situation to a certain degree. Things like this, and um, I mean, anybody can guess what would happen when you you give a little island uh, power like that. What's going to happen? Well, instantly, overnight. It became a sort of you know sweatshop gulag. You know, <laughs> a uh, a little. Uh, you know, an island just crowded chock-a-block with these garment factories surrounded by barbed wire, you know, where they'd bring in people by the plane load, you know, to work at these things for very low wages. And the, the products could be labeled made in the USA and uh, and brought to the United States be- because it's part of the United States without any tariff. So, you know, it's a it's a loophole. They were they were a uh, it's a, its entire economy is based on these these loopholes to the U.S. law. And the reason they came to my attention is because their lobbyist was Jack Abramoff. I mean, this guy had a real nose for, you know, we go apartheid South Africa and then Saipan. He had, you know, he was always choosing winners. But um, he uh, started to, you know, they were in big trouble in the 90s during the Clinton administration because people were starting, there, there was a lot of press coverage of what was going on there. The, these, uh, you know, these sweatshops, people were, uh, you know, it's repugnant to people to read that this is going on in the United States. There started to be, you know, congressmen getting angry about it, uh, threats from the Department of the Interior who, you know, had had some uh, jurisdiction in this, that they were going to, uh, what the what's known in Saipan as uh, federalization. They were going to uh, make Saipan adopt U.S. law altogether. So the U, they have to do go by U.S. immigration rules. They have to have the same minimum wage as everywhere else in the U.S., this kind of thing. And uh, Abramoff's job was to, to keep this from happening. And uh, he succeeded. 
And one of the ways that he succeeded, one of the ways that he did his job was by bringing out people to Sa- – Saipan is a very beautiful place uh, when you don't, you're not working in a sweatshop. You know, it's an island in the Pacific for God's sakes and it has these beautiful golf courses and resort hotels and it's a nice place. And so he would take uh, congressmen and their aides and uh, pundits, uh, journalists on these junkets – to Saipan, and they'd go out there, and they'd have a good time, and they'd they'd, they'd tour, and they'd they'd look around, and then they'd come back to America, and the uh, you know the he, the congressmen were basically on his side then, and uh, the uh, the journalists would write these stories about Saipan, and they would always take the same tack. They'd say, "This is the free market in action. This is our perfect little free market experiment." What did Tom Delay say? It's my. Uh, 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 a free market petri petri dish of capitalism. He called it a petri dish of capitalism. It was like our Hong Kong, you know, this place where you allowed all this free trade, no regulations, no minimum wage, anybody, you know, immigration that could come in and out. And what it, you know, and they're right. That is what it was. It is the it's the free market system in perfect, god awful miniature. And of course, it is a you know Hades of of sweatshops and whoring, or it was. I mean, it's cleaned up a little now. Can you? I have to ask you: Is there anything we can do about this? About that? That's uh, about that... about any of this. The the complete destruction of the United States government over the past oh. uh, twenty years. Rick, I got some bad news for you. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> One of the themes in this book is the concept of permanence. Conservatives are really into the idea of permanence. That you know. Uh, that they could get the liberal beast back into its box and nail it shut so that it could never get out again. You know, that they would reverse the New Deal, they would reverse the Great Society and and cast that in concrete so that those things can never come back. And they talk about this all the time. And I have some several choice quotes from uh, the conservatives towards the end, the end of my book, The Wrecking Crew, um, where they're talking about how their changes are going to be permanent. They're not they're you know they're going to take certain political options off the table, okay? Liberalism is going to come off the table. And in some ways they have not succeeded in this. The uh the biggest push for permanence was uh uh, uh was social security privatization and that failed. Uh, you know, they wanted to hand that over to Wall Street. You'd never be able to get it back if they did that. But in other ways they have uh, achieved it. The 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 budget deficit, for example, that Bush racked up. Well, first Reagan did it. And that made it impossible for Clinton to uh, remember President Clinton wanted to have his social welfare programs and national health. Couldn't do it off the table because of the budget deficit. Now they're doing it again. I mean, as we speak, we're finding out that the budget deficit is much larger than anyone thought. So whoever is elected this year is, you know, if it happens to be a liberal, they're not going to be able to do, uh, you know, to reverse this stuff, to have a kind of social welfare state. Sorry, man. I've been speaking with Thomas Frank. His new book is The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Rule. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. It's my pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.